Good morning and welcome to this very first playback of 2024. Happy New Year. And this week we were a nation transfixed by a 16-year-old. Uh, are you going to watch the darts? Do you know what? If you'd asked me that last week, I would have said, what the hell is Ray Darcy on? I have, because I mean, darts isn't my thing. Now, don't no. get me wrong. I say 180 with the best of them. I love that old phrase. And like if it's on the telly and I'm watching it, it's one of those sports, I call, I call it a sport, let's use the word advisedly, uh, that, 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 you know, you can follow without having any kind of interest in it. Yeah. But this guy, Luke Littler, it's a phenomenal story. Isn't and it? I have been telling my, ch- my two older children for, for days now, like, what's wrong, guys? Yeah. He's about to earn £200,000. <laughs> Uh, in the world final yeah. of the darts, he's only sixteen. Yeah. Um, mind you, he's been playing it since he was three. I think. So what are you saying? Your kids slackers? Driven. You're calling your kids slackers? <laughs> Why haven't you been in the pub since you were five, learning how to play darts? Do, do you know it's interesting you say sport because I remember somebody told me the definition of a sport is something, some activity you have to change your shoes for. <laughs> or, or something you can't drink pints and play. <laughs> that, that, I mean, I think that, that's, that's another that's definition another, of now it would turn out to be Luke Humphreys who would actually win the darts final, but no matter. For a few days, it was all about the kid. On the news at one, Dylan Slevin from Boris O'Kane in County Tipperary, and this question from Brian Dobson. Having played him, Dylan, what makes him such an exceptional player? Uh He's counting like he's he's just like even last night the dart pundit said on commentary like that he knows he knows what he's going for like he if he hits a if he hits a single number that he doesn't want he knows what he can lay up on like you know like he for a sixteen year old to, to have better counting than the top players in the world like that's 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 what gives you the extra push like you know oh we do know because two matches in we were all experts. With Shea Byrne in at nine, Robin Byrne, captain of the Republic of Ireland women's darts team. And she thinks Luke Littler is phenomenal. The way he just throws with such fluidity and doesn't hesitate, like there's no hesitation there. He just gets over the line. He doesn't even think about it. The doubles in before he even thinks about it. His board management and counting and maths is unbelievable. There's no hesitation at all from him when he's trying to leave finishes. And he'd just be thinking about how to leave finishes from way back in legs that some other players wouldn't be capable of. It's how quick he does that, 16 years old. And I know he's only 16, but he has got a lot of experience. He's been playing darts from a young age and he's been winning tournaments since he's 12, 13. He won the Irish Open in Killarney when he was 14 in the men's section. Like he's, he's been phenomenal for years. And of course, she plays darts at the highest level. But she talked about something called dartitis. I'm sorry, pardon? D-A-R-T-I-T-I-S. Can you tell yeah, us what that yeah, is? I had, yeah, I had that a few years ago. So it's kind of more of a mental condition than anything else. It's in your head. Like, your arm physically will not release the dart. Like, you'll try and throw the dart and your hand won't open. You're, you just cannot throw the dart. Your arm won't allow you to. Your brain won't allow you to. It's just kind of a, it's a mental block, for want of a better word. It's kind of like the yips in golf or anything like that. But yeah, it's just a mental condition. And when did that come on to you? Um, I made the Europe Cup final in like, I think maybe even like 2018 in the September and just after that then it kind of came on to me and it kind of took probably the good of a year, two years to really get over it. Like it's, I just, like a lot of people do different things to try and get over it. They change trolls and they change darts and there's all crazy things you can do to try and get over it. But I just kind of played through it, changed the troll a bit and 
played through it and thought like every day they throw was one step closer to throwing it properly. That must have been quite a fright though that first time it happened to you. Yeah, it kind of comes on you. I wouldn't say suddenly, maybe more gradually for me. Like everyone's different, but I was kind of get a bit and then I just throwed it out. And I'd be like, oh, that was weird. And then I try and throw the next one. And I was like, why is that not leaving my hand? Then I was like, every dart then would happen. And then it got to the stage where I was like taking 30 seconds to throw a dart and get to the stage where you're like your feet, you'd be falling over yourself because you're trying to let go of the dart and the dart's just not leaving your hand. It's crazy. And who do you go to see about that? Do you see a neurologist? Do you see um, I suppose you kind of see a psychologist or a therapist or whatever, but I didn't actually see anyone, if I'm being honest. I just kind of looked after it myself. I, I think I knew what it was and I knew why it was happening, so it was to try and just work on that myself. Ooh, that sounds frightening. Fair play to her. That's Robin Byrne with Shay. But when we think of preparation for sports events, we tend to think of protein meals, weight training, meditation. Luke Littler, on the other hand... Has the approach changed tomorrow now? You're in a world final. It's the biggest game in the sport. Is it just do what you've been doing? Do what I've been doing. In the morning, go for my ham and cheese omelette. <laughs> Come in here, have my pizza, and then on the board. That's what I've done every day. So That is a winning formula for sure. You've got to love it. And on Liveline, Billy O'Brien, he's from Wexford and one of Ireland's best darts players. So, do we time travel back to the 80s, smoke-filled arenas in a quick half to steady the nerves for bullseye? Or do we go all 21st century, wheatgrass shots, the long game? And do you think darts gets a bit of a bad rap because of its association with the pubs? I mean, people who would have been watching it back in the 1980s would have seen players you know, drinking pints close to the hockey and that, and it's based, as you say, in pubs. It, it's very associated with drink. Do you think it gets a bad rep as a result? Um, I don't, yeah, it did, probably. But uh, all the great players years ago, and they were outstanding, and they were drinking like fish. They had, uh, uh, I remember Jockey Wilson, and uh, he'd have um, a half a glass of Coke into a, into a pint glass of vodka, you know what I mean? Before he get up on the stage, even. And how did people function? I don't know, but he was exceptional, and so was Leighton Reese, and he loved his points. He was a brilliant player all together, and but, and even Eric Bristow loved it. You know, he loved the drink. And did you ever take a drink while you were playing darts yourself? I tell you, I never drank in my life. I never drank or smoked, so I don't know what it's like. Interesting. Also on the line, Katie Sheldon, another darts champion, and she'd also played against Luke Littler. And when it comes to sheer spectacle, you cannot beat the darts, because you need both a nickname and a walk-on song. Oh, what's it like coming on to that? Does it boost your performance? Does it steady a bit? G up to compete? When I when I made uh, the women's world match play over in Blackpool, we obviously needed walk-on songs and I thought that was a good song. So pick that one. Now that is a sport we can get behind. So if you are looking for a beginner's board for the kiddies, mind those eyeballs, what to go for. What's the best starter toy for a darting toddler? Well, I think if they're a toddler, probably one of them magnetic ones. But uh, over the years, you've heard young young kids playing darts straight away, like 
from two or three. So I guess probably a magnetic one and then depending on how old they are, just get them started as, as soon as they want. Right. And maybe have the children's hospital on, on speed dial while you're at it. All right. Thanks very much. From Liveline. And who would have seen that dominating the first week of the year? From Ella McSweeney, Rooted. Stories of people who have dug a hole in the ground and planted a tree. My name is Mary Ty and I am living here in Middleton in East Cork. I live in a semi-detached house in a small housing estate um, in the town itself. And we have a, a small enough garden. So we moved into this house 18 and a half years ago and I was one of those where I moved into the house and immediately got pregnant. <laughs> and um, very exciting. Uh, while I was pregnant, I had heard about people um, using placentas for various reasons. So some people would eat them, some people encapsulate them um, and other people buried them. I felt this would be a lovely thing to do because in the hospital, what happens is it's industrial waste. So it's just burned. And I felt this was my baby's like life support while she was inside me. And if you've never seen a placenta, when you lie it out flat, it's wine coloured. And as I said, it has all of these veins, usually blue colored veins on it running around. So they look like a tree. The pattern looks like a tree because all those veins then have smaller veins and capillaries off it. So there's branches off the tree. And, and then they go into these main veins, uh, which are the veins that are passing between myself and the baby. We liked the idea of being able to bury the placenta, having that that organ that support, supported my daughter and kept her alive while inside me in our garden, you know, to nourish the land and the soil, etc. So we decided that we would plant the placenta in our back garden. So we dig a hole, uh, we would get a tree and we would put the placenta in the hole and we would put the tree on top. My sister-in-law had already said they were going to buy us a plum tree. So we did, we we went out into the garden, thank God the weather was nice. <laughs> and we dug this hole. Half the thing, if you're, if you're at home and you're thinking, I would like to plant my placenta, the biggest thing is you have to do it deep because otherwise it will be dug up by predators, you know, because it is, you know, they'll smell the blood, etc. So the hole has to be very, very deep. We planted the tree and 18 years later, it's still there. So we actually were able to give my daughter some of the fruit as well you know she didn't really like it so it wasn't just it wasn't as poignant as I thought it was going to be you know you know kids they'll always scupper your visions like <laughs> from Rooted on New Year's Day and wood featured in this next item because if you're looking for a nutritious environmentally sound snack might we offer you a plate of shipworms these are animals that have changed the course of human history. Uh, they are fascinating species of bivalve. Uh, they actually do look like worms, but they are actually bivalves, so clams, oysters, mussels, and um, they eat wood. And basically, this is their superpower. He can use this superpower to help uh, feed billions of people with mm -hmm. delicious, nutritious, and low environmental impact protein. Wood is, um, wood is a very sustainable resource. It sucks out carbon out of the atmosphere to create wood. Uh, we can take that, we can put that in the water, we can feed this to our animals. They will grow inside this wood and then we can take that protein and we can use that to feed ourselves. That's the voice of Professor Reuben Shipway, marine biologist at the University of Plymouth. And he loves the shipworm. He really does. Their history is unbelievable. Ever since humans have been using wood, so wooden vessels, wooden rafts, 
to circumnavigate the globe, to explore, to go sailing, to go fishing, etc. These animals have caused havoc. Um, one of the most famous examples was Christopher Columbus. And on Columbus's fourth voyage to the New World, uh, shipworms basically ate his entire fleet from underneath his feet. And legend has it that ancient mariners, they could put their ears to the holes of vessels and they could hear these animals scraping away at the wood underneath them. It must have been utterly terrifying. Mm-hmm. And um, in the case of Columbus, he got marooned in Jamaica and he wrote this groveling letter to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella saying there was no there was no remedy for the havoc which the worm had wrought. Uh, my ships pierced by borers more than a honeycomb and my crew entirely paralysed by fear in despair. So when you say you can hear them scratching, how do they operate then when they're burrowing into ro- wood? Yeah, so it's a, an animal with two hinge shells. Most of its soft tissue is outside of its shell and its shell is basically at its head. What it does is it uses this shell to drill. It's like a drilling tool. It uses this shell to drill into the wood. It then eats the wood. And as it eats the wood, it grows and it continues moving in the direction in which it grows. Mm-hmm. And you can hear that process then, and that's what the sailors were hearing as described. Yeah, and in a in a piece of wood that's as big as a, sh- a ship, you can get thousands, if not millions, of shipworms in a piece of wood like that. Mm-hmm. So it would be audible. Now, all of that is well and good, but Professor Shipway wants us to eat shipworms. Yummy. Have you eaten them? Oh, yeah. Delicious. They don't look delicious, Reuben. I've got to tell you, (laughs) I was looking at some pictures. They look like worms with sucker faces. That's quite a description, worms with sucker faces. (laughs) Um, So uh, our initial thought was that we can can fry them, we can uh, make them into some kind of like fish cake or a burger that will make them more appetising for people in the West. Uh, but I will say um, in Southeast Asia, in Brazil, in um, Aboriginals, in Australia as well, um, these animals are considered a delicacy. Um, so uh, what some people consider a, a worm with a suckerfish face, other people <laughs> consider a delicacy, right? Fair enough. And he is convinced with a little rebrand, his words, we'll just gobble them up. They're not shipworms, madam. They're naked clams. We think naked clams is a very attractive uh, term for these animals, certainly better than shipworm. It's going to capture people's imagination. When we start talking about the environmental and nutritional benefits of these animals, I, th- I think people are going to be intrigued. People are going to be willing to give it a try. People will try it and they'll realise, actually, um, this is fantastic. So your snacking choice for 2024, nutritious and environmentally friendly. And if you so desire, you can get subtly different flavours. People um, in Southeast Asia will target shipworms in specific mangrove trees because they have slightly different flavours. They prefer maybe the more bitter or the sweet flavour. So you might ask them to uh, or invite them to feed on some aged oak, for example, in the same way that people would age whiskey. Hey, that's, that's the <laughs> that's what we plan to feed to the millionaires and the billionaires, right? The um, <laughs> Mature, six-month-aged, oak-fed shipworm. Oh yeah, the snack you did not know you needed. From today with Claire Byrne. This week, the conflict in Gaza continued and rising tensions in the Middle East in the wake of two separate attacks, one in Lebanon, the other in Iran. On Tuesday evening, an Israeli drone attack in Beirut, killing one of Hamas's leading officials. As the news broke, Drive Time spoke to foreign correspondent Hannah McCarthy. 
this is a big coup for the Israeli forces. Uh, they seem to have um, t- assassinated in a very targeted strike uh, Salah al arouri uh, who is the deputy chairman of the political branch of Hamas. Uh, he was originally in Turkey and he came to Lebanon um, about five years ago and he's kind of been instrumental in setting up Hamas's presence in Lebanon. Uh, this attack in Beirut is, uh, I guess, the most provocative attack that Israeli has staged uh, within Lebanese territory. On Wednesday's Morning Ireland, Gavin spoke to Dan Williams, senior correspondent with Reuters, based in Jerusalem. What are the calculations for Hezbollah now? Excellent question. This is quite a dilemma for the group. The group has been taking part since, I believe, day two of the Gaza war with solidarity strikes against Israel from Lebanon. Israel has returned fire. It's actually been very costly for Hezbollah, something like 130 of its fighters killed, as well as um, a number of others from other groups, as well as some uh, Lebanese civilians. And it has, however, also kept to unwritten rules with Israel keeping this from becoming a full-blown war. Lebanon is in very dire straits economically. It has been for a number of years now. It really cannot afford to go to war with with Israel. And given um, that and other domestic considerations, Hezbollah has to think twice about whether it wants to tip the country into a full-blown war with Israel. So it has to balance out its uh, solidarity with the Palestinians, the fact it may be receiving orders from its sponsor, Iran, which also sponsors Hamas in Gaza, to um, join the fight with its obligations, whatever it feels its obligations are, to uh, Lebanese public opinion, to Lebanese interests, given that many Lebanese might really not want to see themselves go the way of Gaza should there be a full-blown conflagration with Israel. That was Wednesday morning. Later that day, two bomb explosions in the city of Kerman in southern Iran. Nearly 100 people were killed when they attended a procession to mark the fourth anniversary of the killing of General Qasem Soleimani in a US drone strike. On drive time, Borzu Deragahi joined Sarah. This is an unusual but not unprecedented kind of attack uh, in Iran. Um, you know, there's uh, a few signatures that allow us to speculate about who might be behind it. You know, the, I think the key thing is um, hitting this particular target in this particular way, the double tap, uh, the first bomb, and then the second bomb uh, targeting the first responders. That is a, a the classic modus operandi of al-Qaeda or ISIS and other jihadi groups. It was a, you know, civilian I mean, it was a it was a procession. It was a military procession. A lot of the people who were at this particular event are, you know, uh, ideologically uh, opposed to uh, many of the values of the West and so on. But it was you could characterize it kind of objectively as a terrorist attack. The, this was not a military target. It was a you know a, a commemoration ceremony. However, there's not going to be a lot of love lost among. Uh, secular Iranians or or uh, Sunnis in the region who you know been watching with horror as uh, Iran has been um, uh, wreaking havoc in their countries through the militias that Qasem Soleimani organized. Islamic State would later claim responsibility for the attack. And as the week progressed, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah responded to the attack in Lebanon by saying they were not afraid of war. And here at home, particular focus on Irish peacekeeping troops in the Lebanon as tensions in the region escalated. Gavin put this to Vincent Durak, Associate Professor of Middle East Politics at UCD. 
Given the events in Iran and in Beirut and the ongoing uh, violence in Gaza and the anger it has generated across the Middle East, what is the risk of the further spreading of violence in the region now? Well, thankfully, I suppose, um, there seems to be a fairly consistent view amongst commentators in the region and close to the uh, Iranian regime and indeed the Hezbollah leadership that there's very little will on the part of either Iran or Hezbollah to to broaden the the conflict into a second front that involves Lebanon directly. Um, And there are a number of reasons for this. Um, It would be catastrophic, obviously, for for Lebanon. Um, Hezbollah are very significant political actors, as well as uh, having the the military apparatus that they have. Israel, I think, would be reluctant to get involved. Uh, It's, you know, it it would be stretching their resources, significant as they are. Uh, And sources close to the Iranian regime make clear that there's very little will on the part of the leadership there to move beyond the, the the way that they've worked for years now, which is through proxies or quasi-proxies. I mean, these are not actual proxies. They're autonomous actors, but with significant influence from Iran. The calculations now for Hezbollah, despite the sabre-rattling of that address yesterday, there's an element of hold my coat about it. Will they intervene at all in the Israel-Hamas war? Well, beyond the extent to, to which they have done... Um, it's difficult to see that they they have any desire to escalate. And this is partly because sources close to Hezbollah are suggesting that from their perspective, they've won. The the Israelis have actually lost the the war in a significant uh, way insofar as they seem no closer to achieving the, the ends that they pursued at the beginning of this conflict. And yesterday, Israel outlined its plans for Gaza after the war. Claire spoke to Hugo Batchega, BBC Middle East correspondent in southern Lebanon. They said that uh, Gaza is going to be run by Palestinian bodies. Uh, Again, no details about what uh, they mean by that. They've been opposed to the idea uh, that uh, the Palestinian Authority would be running Gaza. Uh, Obviously, the Palestinian Authority is the body that controls some parts of the occupied West Bank. And crucially, uh, you know, Yoav Gallant, the Israeli defense minister, said Israel would retain security control over Gaza. So, uh, in other words, it would continue to uh, carry out inspections of, of trucks and, you know, everybody and everything going into Gaza. But again, we haven't had, you know, uh, uh, a lot of uh, detail about, you know, the plan. And even though we only have the bones of this, uh, Hugo, this plan, I mean, it is very unlikely that the Palestinians will welcome any part of it. Well, exactly. And I think the Palestinian uh, Authority and the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has already rejected the possibility of governing Gaza, saying that uh, he will not you know, enter Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank. It seems that uh, many, many differences here exist between what the Israelis are planning to do, what the Israelis want to do in Gaza once this, you know, this military operation is over, and uh, you know, the conditions that uh, the authorities in the occupied West Bank are willing to accept. The BBC's Hugo Bachega with Claire Byrne yesterday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Now, would we be so cliched as to go for the new year? New you? You betcha. Because what is life, if not goal-setting, followed by failure, leading to crushing disappointment and low self-esteem? And yet we persist. 
But with Ray, a new year for the mind. Although the cynic in Ray is, well, cynical. He was joined by Joe Humphreys, philosophical correspondent of the Irish Times. Yes, they do have one. And thankfully, he's doing the thinking for us. Is this a modern enough thing, the New Year's resolution? It is. I mean, I suppose you could say going back thousands of years, humans have tried to change themselves and kind of made resolutions of some form, particularly within world religions. Um, The kind of New Year's resolution is is a more modern thing. Some people associated with uh, the Methodist John Wesley popularised this idea of making pledges on New Year's Eve. Um, That might be one kind of uh, aspect. And then more more recent times you've had, I suppose, a self-help industry that's grown up around it, a lot of commercialisation around it. So, which we probably should be a bit wary of. I mean, in terms of the 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 original philosophers would uh, would be looking for change all year round, and in fact, the psychologists say that as well. They say, you know, really, um, New Year's isn't often the best time to start a resolution to try to make a change in your life. Um, you know, it can add pressure, and you maybe feel more of a failure if if you've given up on your uh-huh. resolution or if you've failed by day two or three. Yes, it's a longer term project. Uh, uh- and further dampening our resolve, they kind of undermined the whole concept of resolutions. From a philosophical perspective, it approaches slightly differently. I guess the psychologists would say, you know, they're looking at how to, um, you know, improve your efficiency, change your habits, so forth. The philosophers ask the why question, you know, why are you doing what you're doing at uh-huh. the moment? You know, why are you spending your time on, on this, that or the other? Well, because, we... because everybody's talking about it, Joe. They, like if you open up a newspaper, it's New Year's resolutions. If you're on well, social media, it's New Year's resolutions. If you're listening to radio, it's New Year's I know you're against New Year's resolutions. I know you're against New Year's resolutions. You've spelled out your position now. I Maybe I'll try and change your, change your view but on the why, this. The, the why, though, why, no, no, yeah. but, but seriously, there, there should be a why. There they? should be, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. If you ask just you know, how to be more successful, to achieve certain goals, it, it, it's, a, it's a limited form of, I suppose, horizon. The way we live today, I know Marilyn Robinson, the, the American writer, writes about this joyless urgency that a lot of us live. We're just meeting to-do lists. We're just trying to get to the next to-do list, do a job, tick it off, do it more efficiently, get to the next thing. So the why allows you to step back from that and say, are we spending too much time uh, on, on these particular tasks? Do we need to reorder things and, and, and to ask those questions we've been burying? And while they both agreed that lasting change can be difficult to achieve, we could all strive to be better people. More Benjamin Franklin, if you will. The original virtue signaller. One of the founding fathers of America, who um, is a terrible overachiever, he invented the bifocal spectacles and the lightning <laughs> rod and mapped the Gulf Stream, and and also did all this amazing stuff as a as a as a statesman. And um, he had, when he started, when he was twenty years old, he he started what was a kind of a journal. Uh, he wrote down thirteen virtues that he wanted to develop in himself: so modesty, courage, charity compassion, all these various things, hard work or diligence. Honesty was another one. If he told a lie, he'd put an X there. If he told the truth sometime, he right. put a tick. So he, he kept this up. Now, he so it was his own personal confessional? It was his own confessional, exactly. But he had, he had set the rules himself. He had his own little notebook exactly right. with him. And apparently he used to show it to, the, to ladies sometimes to try and impress them and say, look how virtuous <laughs> I am. It wasn't very humble. But he actually, but, the, 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 but he credited it with how he um, developed through life. I suppose he, he got material success. I mean, he was kind of a uh, very uh, eminent individual but he also credited with, with living a contented and satisfying life ultimately and it wasn't that he he did this every day he'd say he'd work on maybe one virtue a week um, and that mirrors what psychologists would say that you shouldn't try and work on too many things at once that really it's too too hard okay. for one person to change so, so, say- so pick your virtues 
Joe Humphreys with Ray. But not entirely sure that Brian O'Connell got the New Year's memo. He was out pumping iron. Ernie was mentioned. But if you are taking up something new, take her handy was the advice from clinical psychologist and author Dr Mally Coyne. We tend to rebel against things we feel we should do rather than we want to do. And I think the other issue is that people are making multiple goals as opposed to one. Could it be that you might start with going to the gym once a week and see how that goes for you, that you're definitely going to be going once a week? Exercising with people is known to kind of maintain changes more because it sets this level of like even that hundred days of walking. I love that every year. That, that because it's kind of like it's achievable. It's something you do with other people. You're not just accountable to mm-hmm. yourself. You're accountable to somebody you might be going for a walk with. But that washboard stomach painted on abs. Surely none of us are as shallow as all that. <clears throat> Some people are getting fit or going to the gym now because they want to look a certain way mm. as opposed to wanting to feel a certain way. Fitness seems to be a lot more image driven now as opposed to health driven amongst a certain demographic, at least. I just, I feel there's a lot more pressure on everybody to be more image conscious. If we can try to maybe focus more on how our body feels, like I think it's really important for us to trust our gut. So doing exercise and being healthy, like focusing on the basics of well-being, which are trying to get good enough sleep. Um, eating relatively healthily. They say for us to be well, we need to have three things. One is some enjoyment every day, something that you enjoy. The second is about achievement, having something that you achieve every day. And the third is about human connection with other people. We just really need to think of where we're at and to trust our gut and to do things that feel good for ourselves. Oh, that does sound like a plan. But if many were pondering the arbitrary and sometimes contrary nature of New Year's resolutions, for Claire, for your brow, she was contemplating the nature of time itself. She spoke to Professor David Malone from the University of Maynooth. We tend to measure things in our lives in tens and in one hundreds, but we have 60 minutes in an hour and 24 hours in a day. Why? Why would we do that? Why would we do that? That's an excellent question. So the reason we usually measure things in tens is because if you hold up your hands and you count your fingers, you've got ten of them. Yes. And ten is a nice number. We, we learn to do our, all our arithmetic that way. And in fact, the way we write our numbers is even oriented around tens. We have digits from zero to ten, and then we start doing tens and hundreds and thousands. But if you go back to the Babylonians, they counted a different way. They like counting in twelves. And that has certain advantages. It means that... If you take 10 and you want a half of it, it's a nice number. But if you want 10 and a third of it, that's not a nice number anymore. Mm-hmm. But if you look at a third of 12, it's four. That's nice. And I can probably even tell your uh, listeners how to count in 12s on your hands because oh, yeah, you can't do it. Uh, so if you're in a place where it's safe to look at the palm of your hand and you hold up your fingers, each finger has three little segments on it. And so if you count all the segments, that's 12 segments. And if you take your thumb, you can point at the segments. So you can start, say, on your little finger and you can count down one, two, three, four, five, six on the next finger, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So you can count in twelves on your hands if you want to. <laughs> I'm happy you're doing ten. <laughs> really, really Diligently counting here, mostly keeping up. Keep going. So then if we're counting in twelves, how do we end up with the seven day week? So that is a, a, another interesting one. Again, maybe due to the Babylonians. So the Babylonians knew about seven interesting things that moved around in the sky. 
So you can see planets moving around. They knew about Saturn and Jupiter and Mercury and Venus, and they could see the sun and the moon. Clearly, these were very interesting things in the night sky, moving around, doing something exciting. And so they started assigning things like days were associated with different planets. Hmm, interesting. And still with you. So what about the seven-day week then? Was it ever thus? I mean, it's run for a really, really long time. We're going back to the Babylonians. We also have a seven-day week in a religious sense around, it's mentioned in the Bible, God created the world in seven days. And so this is important for religious purposes. But people have tried to change it a couple of times. So, for instance, the French Revolution, they were very into counting in tens, as you said, and they wanted 30-day months, because that would be a nice multiple of 10. You had, would have three 10-day weeks in each month. And they were going to have one day off each 10-day week, which would be sort of the equivalent of Sunday. And that ran for about 20 years before people really gave up on it. Mm-hmm. I wonder uh, what their motivation was for that. It, it was, I think it was part, it was like a revolutionary mindset. People wanted to get away change. from old stuff and they wanted to change things. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union tried a very similar thing. They wanted to have a five-day week where every different people would be assigned a different day off. So you would have continuous production. Uh, but this was uh, basically wrecked by the ordinary people would take Sunday off anyway. And so they would get their proper day off and their Sunday and day one. off. And eventually it sort of, it lasted actually quite a while. It went from maybe, I think, maybe 1910s up to 1940 before it uh, fully went away. And while our 12-month calendar wasn't always the case, blame the moon, it is Easter that we look to for many of our key dates. Our calendar is very tied up with the date of Easter. Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the spring equinox. So the day when it's... Okay, so there's a lot to calculate there. You need to know when the full moon is. And our calendar is terrible at that. So you need to do some calculations for that. And you need to know when the equinox is. And it turns out that the calendar as fixed by Julius Caesar, so he made various modifications to the calendar, made the year a tiny bit too long. So he put in a leap year every four years. Mm -hmm. One this year. And there's one this year. And uh, that's slightly too many. So that would give you uh, 100 leap years every 400 years. Mm -hmm. But actually, you'd be better off with 97. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And this is just to do with the geometry and the speed of the planets and all this kind of thing as they go around the sun. (laughs) What? Get yourself a coffee, double shot it. You might need it. And what problem does that throw up? So what the the problem that this is fixed... So what happened is that the day of the equinox was supposed to be the 21st of... Uh, March in the calendar and gradually it was moving because the year was the the wrong length and so by the time they reached about 1500 the equinox was off by more than about 11 days and so Pope Gregory fixed the calendar he changed the leap year rule so the rule that most of us has learned it's not right it's not every fourth year is a leap year it's every fourth year unless it's a century in which case it's not a leap year unless it's also a 400 year centenary in which case it is so that's really complicated. It's but it com- means yeah, but it's complicated. We have lived through that. We've we? lived through that. So we've re- lived through one of the few 400-year leap years. So those of us who were alive in 2000 uh, saw a leap year that was uh, a 400-year leap year, whereas those of us who are young enough to live through 2100, and there will be people around now who are young enough to do that, will see 2100 will not be a leap year. Ooh, I'll take your word for it. Melty brains. Well, after all that... Let's take something entirely different. On New Year's Day, Stanza, presented by Enda Wiley and Peter Sir. 
And Wiley asked Paula Meehan to introduce her poem, Woman at Work. It's dedicated to Alva Smith and her excavation of the buried stories of so many Irish women. When I was given the image of the scribe in my schooling, it was always a guy in a monastic setting with a cat and writing his lovely little thoughts in the margin. And I was thinking, oh, there must have been women. There were women everywhere. So I wrote this. And not long after it was published, they dug up in Dalheim in northern Germany, they dug up a female skeleton. They found in the plaque behind her teeth ground lapis lazuli, which was one of the colours from Afghanistan that was used in the illuminated manuscripts, a very precious pigment that um, was used for the Virgin's robes right up into the Renaissance till they got cheaper ways of doing it. So I decided for Alva I'd put her as a a scribe in a scriptorium. Um, And as I say, it was prophetic of the real understanding that women were scribing all over the gaff, right? Woman at work. When I picture her now, she is grinding lapis lazuli in some scriptorium by starlight, by her own light, in the shine of the moon, mixing to a blue rapture her sorrows, her angers. She is minding her language in the midst of alarums, of sirens, of danger. She holds the line. She sounds each letter, her song of water, fluid mirror to the cosmos above. Like the ancient scribe snagged by a blackbird who draws in the margins of feathery home, we've tracked through centuries this ferocious love, stronger than the prescriptive word of any god where we build our nest, this edge we'll call poem. From stanza on New Year's Day and doubly apt for Nullignamon. On Liveline, contender for line of the year, so far anyway. Colm is talking to Pierce Stokes, who volunteers with Wildlife Rescue. He mostly rescues foxes, but not always. Did you say squirrels will try and fight their way out of a situation? If they're if they're cornered, yeah. I just mean any any even a mouse will even try and fight its way out. You know what I mean? I just if an animal's cornered and the last resort is they'll they'll either the first thing they'll do is they'll run away. Every have you ever seen a squirrel trying to fight away. its way out of a situation or heard reports? I was bitten by a fox. But I was bitten by a squirrel last night. Last night. <laughs> last night. Yeah. What happened? Um, so I. I, I had three rescues to do yesterday for Kildare Wallace Rescue um, and I had to get a squirrel out of a a chimney stove um, and it was in there and just squirrels what, are very, f- very... Climbed up on the chimney and fell down, did it? It seems to have fallen down the chimney, yeah. Um, so I just had to take it out from inside the chimney and while I was doing that, as sometimes happens, um, because squirrels are very... I mean, squirrels are rodents and they're very, very strong for their size and all the rest of it. So, you know, it it's harmless to an adult like me, but I'm just saying they will fight one corner. When given no other choice, they'll always they'll run away first. They'll result to most animals will run away, resort to depending on their camouflage, so they'll sit totally still. But if you continue to get up close to them, eventually right. they will fight. If they and is there any fight. difference but, between red and grey squirrels in terms of aggression? Yes, uh, there's a huge difference in size. Um, and red squirrels are very rare. And what so, colour you know, was the one that bit you? Grey. 
And just very important that I say, I didn't rescue that for rehabilitation because we only rehabilitate native species, but this was just an animal welfare issue where an animal was trapped. I just relocated it back out into the back garden. Right. So we felt um, that the, the stove wasn't on at the time, was it, when it fell down the no, chimney? No, no, no. Oh, no lucky no, squirrel. Um, lucky squirrel is right and him with the biting. Bad squirrel. Meanwhile, soon to be retired, the longest serving senator in Ireland, David Norris. He spoke to Dervil MacDonald and he played some music choices, some of which might be given an outing at his funeral. Yes, he's not leaving that one to chance. You, you have been um, planning your funeral for a long time. I'm so impressed by your attention to detail. I have it all worked out, including the, the, the little <clears throat> order of service uh, and also... Uh, what I have to say about my beliefs, uh, which I have printed out in case people can't hear because the acoustics in the cathedral are, are a bit wobbly. St. Patrick's Cathedral. St. Patrick's, yes, um, absolutely. I, I love St. Patrick's. I've been going there since I was a small um, child. The, the, I don't know if you can give us a preview of the eulogy because you're quite the showstopper, but even that process of writing that, and I, I heard previously that you were going to play it from the coffin. You're, you're going to scare the living daylights out of everyone else. <laughs> so, but, but, what, what, well, do, what's even it like worse, to I was going to appear by a hologram in the pulpit. Oh, thank goodness you've given people my, notice my, of that. my sister-in-law burst into tears <laughs> when she heard that, so I, I decided I'd better withdraw. That process, though, and, and a lot of cultures do that, of imagining um, your death or what would you would leave b- mm. behind. When you did that process of writing the eulogy, was it gratitude for a life, for a life that is, has been well-lived and is still being well-lived? Yes, I've been very lucky uh, in my life. I mean, I've found love with three people, uh, one of whom is still alive, uh, and... Kicking, <laughs> which is very gratifying. Um, so I, I think I've been terribly lucky. and uh, But I, I think you also contribute to your own luck in the sense that you have to yes. respond positively to opportunities. I mean, a lot of people get opportunities and they, they're hesitant or they're worried or they don't com- want to commit themselves and so on. And I think that's a mistake. Now, his efforts to decriminalise homosexuality in Ireland will quite rightly be in the history books. But that campaigning was not without some fun too. Did you realise that you and others were being incredibly brave at that point in time? No, I don't think so. I, it was great fun. I mean, the whole thing was, 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 was great fun. I mean, my solicitor was John Jay, mm. and he was a very serious-looking man with deep jowls and all this solemn expression, and he was sending me down notes, and everybody thought it was legal points. It wasn't. It was violently obscene caricatures of the judges. Even <laughs> <laughs> Norris. Do you know what? I, I, I remember as a young student in, in law school reading about your historic uh, cases and obviously uh, a, w- a win ultimately that was on a number of losses, including in the High Court and the Supreme yes. Court. And I had the opportunity um, in an earlier part of my career to meet Garrett Cooney, your senior counsel, who opened your case in the High Court with the words, my client is a congenital irreversible homosexual. What was it like being in court and at the centre of such a landmark constitutional action? That was terribly funny because uh, the newspapers the next day reported rising to his feet in the High Court, uh, uh, Garrett Cooney SC told the court that he was an irreversible homosexual. (laughs) 
Garrett went absolutely crackers and demanded a retraction. So the next day, the headline was, I am not a homosexual, says uh, Cooney. And everybody over their breakfast marmalade and toast was saying, well, his eyes are very close together anyway. And given his long and colourful career, Derval put this to him with something of an unexpected answer. When you look back on that um, longevity and that career, um, in any life, professional, personal, there's setbacks, there's comebacks, there's victories, there are defeats, there are glory days and there are hard yards. What have been the, for you, the highest and maybe the hardest parts of this incredible life you've led? Well, I I don't see much of it as being very hard. Um, there's a lot of joy, you know. I mean, I sit in my dining room and look, looking, look out into the back garden and I have little feeders for the birds and I watch the birds and I absolutely love them, the, the little common sparrows, although they're not so common now. We're doing so much damage to the environment. And... What has been challenging for you in life? Well, I, I suppose just being alive is, is a challenge for everybody, every day, you know, and uh, nobody actually knows whether they're going to wake up in the morning. But what keeps you going? You know, what has, made, what has given you this, this extraordinary... Well, a love of life. I enjoy every breath that I breathe. Uh, and uh, just to enjoy life as much as you possibly can. And finally, this question from Derval MacDonald. What do you think, David Norris, or what would you like um, your legacy to be? To have made life a little bit better for people in in Ireland. Uh, You know, um, a little while ago, I was going across O'Connor Bridge and I saw two lovely young men holding hands. And I thought, that's what it was all for. The very wonderful David Norris. And that is it from this week's Playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.